We are, of course, still in the Gospel of Mark. We have been for a number of months and will still be yet for many months to come. But in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we have now reached chapter 6. Mark is clearly communicating the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He's the promised Redeemer. He's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And all of the incredible, amazing things that Mark has recorded in chapters 1 through 5 were Jesus' self-revelation, as we've called it. That is, He was revealing Himself, telling people who He was. He's saying, I'm the promised Redeemer. I'm the one that Genesis chapter 3 spoke about. I'm the one that the Psalms point to. I'm the one that Isaiah wrote about. I am the one. And Jesus was proving that by pushing back the curse of sin day after day after day. He was healing diseases and repairing crippled limbs and opening blind eyes and unstopping deaf ears and even raising the dead. He was teaching with such spiritual authority that everyone was amazed. And to go along with that unlimited miraculous power and awesome spiritual teaching was also incredible compassion. There could have been so many ways in which Jesus could have demonstrated who he was as the God-man with various displays of power, but he chose expressions of power that were connected to delivering people from the sufferings of life, from hunger, from fear, from disabilities, from diseases, from grief, from sorrow. And all of those displays of power were filled with expressions of mercy toward human pain and suffering. As Jesus said, as I was telling you last week, Jesus is telling everyone, I'm the answer. He was the answer 2,000 years ago, and he's still the answer today to all of the problems of society and to all of our personal struggles. Submission to Jesus Christ and obedience to Jesus Christ and a relationship with Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sin from Jesus Christ and a new life in Jesus Christ, that is the answer to the effects of the curse of sin. If you want to resist the effects of the curse of sin in your personal life, then you turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. If you want to resist the effects of the curse of sin in your family, then obey the commands of Jesus Christ. If you want to experience the blessing of God on your life, then submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you want greater fulfillment and purpose in life, then grow your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the answer, and that is what all these miraculous things that we have been studying are all about. And as we move into chapter 6, we see another astounding power in a negative sense. We see the power of unbelief, yet the continuing ministry of the Lord Jesus in spite of it. And if we were to title our thoughts today, I would call it Ministry in the Face of Unbelief. Ministry in the Face of Unbelief. Let's read the first 12 verses of chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. Then he went out from there, Jesus, of course, came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? 
Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit, teaching. And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. You and I think about faith quite often as being very powerful, don't we? And, and that is correct. Faith is very powerful. Faith moves mountains, as Jesus said in Matthew 17. However, you know, or I hope you know, that, that faith, faith is not my willpower. Faith is not my ability to envision my future and then believe and believe and believe and believe and then achieve it. You know, people often have the little slogan, believe it and you can achieve it. It's a great slogan, but it's biblical foolishness. Because our faith is not to be in our own abilities or in how much faith we think we have. Faith is rooted in who God is. Faith is believing God so strongly that we obey what He says. Now we could spend the next 45 minutes developing that thought from Hebrews chapter 11, but I know that we have already done that in past sermon series. We're not going to revisit that text today. But faith is rooted in the character of God and in the Word of God. Now we understand who God is and we are totally convinced that whatever He says is true, so we do it. Faith is believing God so strongly, trusting Him so totally, that we obey what He says. That's biblical faith, and it is indeed very powerful, because God is powerful and His Word is powerful. So faith isn't powerful because of something in me or you. Faith is powerful because it is rooted in who God is. But I want you to understand also, as we look at our text today, that unbelief is also very powerful. Unbelief is a great, great force. The power of unbelief is so great that it has had negative effects throughout all of eternity, and it will. Adam and Eve exercised unbelief in the Word of God, and they crashed the entire human race into the curse of sin. In the days of Noah, Noah was a preacher of righteousness warning the world. The world would not believe, and the world of unbelievers brought a flood on their own heads and drowned all of humanity with the exception of Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. Thus in Noah's day, unbelief caused the destruction of the entire human race and all creatures and all life living on the earth. It was unbelief on the part of Israel that caused an entire generation of men to die in the wilderness before they could enter the promised land. 
The story of Israel's ongoing recurring unbelief even after they entered the land of Canaan is very clear for us to see in the Old Testament. They were judged again and again by God for their unbelief. Aaron's act of unbelief regarding the golden calf resulted in 3,000 people dying. Moses' unbelief kept him from being able to enter the promised land. The, the, the unbelief of Judas Iscariot led to his suicide and his everlasting punishment. Most of the scribes and Pharisees were unbelievers in Jesus' day, right to the very end. And like all other unbelievers, their unbelief resulted in them dying in their sins and forfeiting eternity with the Lord. The New Testament has a lot to say about faith and believing. But it also has a lot to say about unbelief. In those very familiar words of John 3.16, I said to quote it to me, most of you could quote that. We often, we often should add verse 17 along with it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And then this last part of verse 17, He, he who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, unbelief activates divine wrath. Unbelief brings divine judgment. It is a very, very powerful force. I won't have you turn there, but in John chapter 8, Jesus tells his listeners, he's having a little debate with some of his listeners, and he says, I'm going away, and you are going to seek me, and you are going to die in your sins, because where I'm going, you can't come. And the Jews said to him, is he going to kill himself? Because he says, where I'm going, you can't come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world, therefore I said to you, you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, He said, you will die in your sins. And so we say again that unbelief is a mighty force. It has brought a curse on the whole human race. It drowned all humanity in the days of Noah. It activates the wrath and judgment of God. It is the one sin that leads to eternal condemnation. The one sin that cannot be forgiven, as Jesus himself said. He who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And remember, I think you probably remember as well, that when we talk about believing, it doesn't mean that we just accept certain facts as being correct. It means that we totally trust, that we pledge our allegiance to, that we, that we commit to. And in these few verses that we just read, we see the Lord Jesus Christ returning to His hometown. The last time He was there, as He was in the beginning of His ministry, and the people from the synagogue there tried to throw Him off a cliff. But He's back again, not for a family visit, but for ministry. And he comes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he begins to teach. Nothing unusual there. And the folks who attended were astonished. Nothing unusual there. Jesus was apparently amazing to listen to. He had wisdom. He had authority. He had biblical knowledge. He had impressive public speaking ability. He had it all. And he astonished people everywhere he went, as we see in verse 2. It said, many hearing him were astonished. Saying, where did this man get these things? But their astonishment 
gave way to skepticism as they looked at Jesus with a heart of rejection. And as we look at this passage, I want to share with you today four ways that unbelief blinds unbelievers. It's very obvious here in this, in, in this passage, I want to share with you four, four ways that unbelief blinds unbelievers. The first one is this, they trip over the obvious. Look at verse 2. Where did this man get these things, they said? And what wisdom is this, is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, they said? They said, where, where, where did this come from? And notice, I mean, it's kind of interesting to me. They were more concerned about where it came from than what it actually was. If you were walking around outside our church, I know this would never happen, but if you were actually walking around outside our church and you found a bundle of $100 bills, the first question that come to your mind would be, wow, where did this come from? What would be your second thought? Hmm, I wonder who saw me pick it up. <laughs> because you know what it is. Here are these folks listening to Jesus speak. They're not so concerned about what he's saying. They just want to know, where did he come up with all this stuff? See, there's a, there, 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 there was really only one logical answer to where it came from. And that is that it came from God. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the one who's come to fulfill Messianic prophecy. And, and he told them the, 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 the very first time that he came. Now, that's obvious. There's no need for these silly questions like, what's the origin of this? What, what could this be, this miraculous power connected with this kind of teaching? It's obviously from God. Nobody can do these things unless God's there. I mean, who can stand up in a boat and tell the wind to stop? And in fact, the disciples who were there realized that. Who is this? Wow. Even the wind and the waves obey him. I mean, who, who can cast thousands of demons out of a person just with a spoken word? Who can do that? He's obviously from God. But, but when you are blinded by unbelief, you trip over the obvious. Jesus repeatedly said to the Jews on a, a number of occasions, he said, if you don't believe my words, then at least believe my works. Because who can possibly do this except God? But in the blindness of their unbelief, unbelievers trip over the obvious. Secondly, they, they, they focus on the irrelevant. You, can focus, you, you focus on things that don't really matter, things that aren't really connected to the issue at hand. We see that in verse 3. Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, are, are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. See, is, is this not the carpenter? Now, that word actually, just by way of uh, just some thoughts to you there, the word actually means a builder. Uh, not necessarily wood exclusively. The word is often applied to a, a stonemason or people who work with metal, etc. It, it is a very broad word that indicates a tradesman or a builder. But there was a letter written by an early church leader around 150 A.D. It referred to Jesus and Joseph as men who built yokes and plows out of wood. And so the tradition has continued to this day that they worked with wood. And thus this Greek word that's translated here is always translated carpenter, even though it just means one who builds. 
So the Lord Jesus could have been a stonemason. He could have worked with wood. He could have worked with metals. He could have built, I mean, he could have done a number of things. Very broad term that, 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 that Jesus and his father Joseph had this trade. But because of that letter written in 150 AD, we always think of him as a carpenter in the modern sense of working with wood. But what the local people were saying was that Jesus was not one of the religious elite. He's not a Pharisee. He's not a Sadducee. He's not a scribe. He's not one who has received a proper theological education. He's just a common laborer who works with his hands. Furthermore, they go on to say, he's the son of Mary. Now we think of that in very endearing terms. But to the people in Nazareth in that day, that was meant to be a slam. Because you were always identified by who your father was unless you didn't know who your father was. Then you were identified by your mother's name. And so when they say, isn't this this common working class guy that we don't even know who his father is? They are implying, as the Pharisees did in John chapter 8, that Jesus was born of fornication. They're also saying Jesus, he's just, he's just one of the local kids who grew up and started thinking he was really something. I mean, we know his family, we know his brothers and sisters. Who does he actually think he really is? However, if Jesus is preaching the truth from God, who cares who his brothers and sisters are? Who cares if he's a common laborer before he entered the ministry? You see, people who are blinded by unbelief, they, they, they are always... Focusing on irrelevant things. You know, people who are blinded by unbelief do it all the time. You may be talking to somebody about the Lord. And they say, well, yeah, yeah, okay, I mean, I get all this Jesus sin stuff, but you know, but, let me, but who do you think the sons of God were in Genesis 6? You ever wonder about those giants in the Old Testament? I mean, how tall do you think Goliath really was? They're always trying to divert to some irrelevant topic. I've talked to people many, many times about, you know, what do you think of such and such a TV preacher there, Reverend? Thinking, I don't really care. I want to know, where do you stand with Jesus Christ? I don't care what so-and-so says on such and such a television station. Where do you stand with Jesus Christ? Well, yeah, but I just kind of wonder, what, yeah, what, what do you actually think about so-and-so? You know, I, I assure you that if a person winds up spending eternity in hell, they will not care how tall Goliath was. People have said, you know, I, I went to church once and, and somebody looked at me with a really strange look. I think they were judging me. Doesn't the Bible say you shouldn't do that? Well, yeah, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, judge not so you will not be judged. I've often jokingly said that's the favorite verse of unbelievers and carnal Christians. Judge not that you be not judged. But, 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 but do, do people who use that verse really understand what Jesus was teaching? And, and how do we have any idea what anyone is thinking anyway? Years ago, somebody said to me, you know, I ran into so-and-so from your church the other day, and they kind, of, they kind of snapped their eyes at me. Now, I must admit, I'm not familiar with that expression. I've heard it for many years off and on. I think I know what it means, but I'm not sure. I can snap my fingers, but I'm not sure how to snap my eyes. I'm sure it's connected to judging somehow. Maybe some of you who understand it can illustrate it for me sometime. But you know what? If a person winds up spending eternity in hell, who cares who snapped their eyes at you? But you see, those who are blinded by unbelief are experts at tripping over the obvious, 
and focusing on the irrelevant. It's a, it, it is a tool of the devil to distract unbelievers from the most important issue. And that most important issue is, who is Jesus Christ and what have I done with him? Because when we take our last breath and we stand before God, that is the only question that is going to matter. Is, is who is Jesus Christ and what have I done with him? So people trip over the obvious, they focus on the irrelevant. Third thing they do is they attack the messenger. End of verse 3, after they've looked at Jesus, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and so forth? And they were offended at him. The, the, the Greek word there is skandalizo. We get our English word scandal from that. It means to stumble over, to be upset in, in disbelief, and to say, oh, what a scandal, can you believe that? That's the concept behind that word. Because it was, it was absolute blasphemy in their minds that this hometown kid, this average working class guy, would claim to be God, would, would claim to be the Son of God. It was just scandalous to them. You know, re repeatedly, the Scripture talks about how the Jewish people stumbled over the reality of Jesus and over the Gospel. Just flat-out antagonism. That, that is the attitude of an unbeliever who gets challenged with the truth. That when the, the, the truth is obvious, and when the truth is relevant to them, they don't want to deal with it, so they just turn and attack the messenger. And I guarantee you, that will happen to anyone who openly attempts to witness. The unbeliever will try to ignore the truth by attacking the person who's presenting it, which is you. Jesus prepares his disciples for this right after this Nazareth encounter. Mark's version is kind of shorter here in these next verses 7 to 12. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he is reading in, in, in Matthew chapter 10, Matthew kind of records all of that. We won't read the entire section from, from Matthew. But Jesus says this. He says to his disciples, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men because they're going to hand you over to the councils and they're going to scourge you in their synagogues. And just what exactly would their crime be for all that? Were they robbing and murdering and stealing? Were they lawbreakers? No. All they were doing was telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus went on to say, he said, you're going to be brought in before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. When they hand you over, don't worry about what you'll say. It will be given you in that hour what you're going to say, because it's not you who speaks, it's the spirit of your father who's speaking in you. And he says, even your own brother will, will deliver you to death. And a father, his child, children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You'll be hated by all men because of my name. Now, we haven't experienced that level of persecution in the United States because we don't currently have government-sanctioned persecution. There are, however, many followers of the Lord Jesus whose families, even here in America, and some of your families, are quite antagonistic to the biblical gospel and walking by faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, expect it. Unbelievers will trip over the obvious they will focus on the irrelevant, and then they're going to start attacking the messenger so they can avoid responding to the truth. This saying of Jesus in verse 4 is really quite powerful, has many implications for us. A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Lots of different impl implications for that. One implication is this, and I, and I know all of you can attest to it. It is incredibly difficult to witness to your own family. 
It is. The hardest people to witness to are the people in your own family. Why, you say? They know every skeleton in your closet. They know all your faults. They know all your flaws. They know all your hang-ups. They know all your screw-ups. It's your family, and they are very familiar with you. You can witness to somebody who knows you very well, and they just blow it off, and then somebody else comes along that they are familiar with, and they say the same thing that you've been saying, and the other person listens because it isn't you saying it. You see, a prophet is honored everywhere but in his hometown among his own relatives. That's meant to be a general principle, not an absolute rule, and I assure you that if you live faithfully for the Lord, He will give you opportunities with your family, but if a person is bent on unbelief, it is very, very difficult to witness to your own family. Because they like to attack the messenger. Like, who do you think you are? You remember, you, you remember what you did 35 years ago? I remember what you did 35 years ago. And now you're into all this Jesus stuff. And some of you are saying, oh yeah, I, I've been there, Pastor, I've been there. Jesus says a prophet's not without honor except in his own country. He comes back to preach, says he's the son of God. Everybody looks at him, who is this guy? He's the son of Mary. He's the carpenter. I mean, he's the, this working class guy. We know his family. What, what, who's he, who does he think he is? So they trip over the obvious, they focus on the irrelevant, they attack the messenger, and then fourthly, they reject the supernatural. It's quite interesting there in verse 5, it says, Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled, Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus looked up and said, wow, you, the level of unbelief here is just amazing. I mean, here I am, I, I grew up in this town. Yeah, they think they know who I am, but they also know what I didn't do. Can you imagine having a sinless neighbor? Can you imagine having a sinless relative? Can you imagine knowing a kid down the street who has never, ever, ever, ever sinned in his entire life? Jesus marvels at, at their unbelief. But because of that, Unbelief but blinds people by deceiving them into rejecting the works of God. He said he could do no miracle there except lay his hand on a few sick people and heal them. Jesus basically shut down the supernatural aspect of his ministry during his time in Nazareth. The same thing stated in Matthew chapter 13 when Jesus is speaking about some of these same things. Because of their level of unbelief, he did not do any supernatural works there. So what, what, what's that all about? Is this some kind of a power issue with Jesus? Well, of course not. It, it's not a power issue. It's a purpose issue. What, what is the purpose of miracles? The, the purpose of miracles is to testify to the truth. Jesus' words were backed up by his works. If you have absolutely rejected the truth, then there's no need for miracles because you're not going to believe it anyway. You know, if, if there were a person around today who could heal anything, anytime, anywhere with anyone, who could deliver from demonic possession, who could literally control the natural forces of weather, and who had such incredible teaching authority that he was spellbinding to listen to, and at the same time he was compassionate and kind-hearted and accessible to people and gracious, who could show you the way to God and, and, and could show you how to live confidently with the blessing of God, if there were such a person around like that, that. Is that the person you would want to kill? 
Yet that's exactly the way it turned out for the Lord Jesus. Give us Barabbas, they're screaming at the time of his crucifixion. Give us Barabbas, kill Jesus. Now from our perspective as believers in Jesus Christ, that is so incredibly bizarre. You want to shout, are you guys crazy? Are you, are you crazy? You don't know who Jesus is? Are you nuts? Yeah, they're crazy. Because they were blinded by unbelief. And that is, that is the, the ultimate disaster of unbelief. That it literally shuts a person off from God. Shuts them off from His forgiveness and His peace and His joy and His confidence and His blessing. So, so unbelief, as I said earlier, is an incredible destroying force. It never has enough evidence. It always does biased research. It always rejects the facts. It trips over the obvious. It focuses on the irrelevant. It attacks the one who's giving the, uh, the, the truth. It rejects the supernatural works of God. And so it shuts itself off from all of that divine power. And you would think that after all of that, Jesus would tell his disciples, the twelve, hey guys, there are so many unbelievers out there. There's so much unbelief out there. It is pointless to preach to anybody. We get the feeling that way sometimes, don't we? There's so much opposition to the gospel. There's so much resistance to the gospel. Like, what's the point of witnessing? Unbelief has blinded them all, so, oh well. But you know, Jesus did exactly the opposite. He sent them out to preach repentance in verses 7 up through verse 12. He, he, gave, them, he gave them authority similar to His. He, he put them in a circumstance that required them to trust God and to provide through His people. When He says, don't, don't take bread and, and don't take a bag, don't take copper in your money belts, uh, don't take anything with you, just take off, don't even take a change of clothes, just, just, just take off and start going around preaching to people. And when people invite you into their house, and He said, if you come to a certain town and someone says, here, you can stay at my house, of course, no motels anywhere, you always stay at somebody's house. And if somebody, he said, if somebody invites you in, he says, then just stay at that house until you're done preaching in that town. Now, the point of that, we don't always, we don't know. In fact, I didn't realize till this week there was a, there was a very common thing that many traveling teachers would do. They would show up in a town, someone would invite them to their home, and if people liked what they were preaching, somebody would come up with them after he got done and say, you know, I, I got a little bit bigger house than this place where you're staying. And, you know, I probably, in fact, I think my wife's a better cook than that guy's wife anyway. And, you know, you won't, and, and, I, and I, w I would like it if you would come to our house and stay next. You know I mean, say, so you don't have to stay at his place. You want to just come over to our place. And so teachers would go from place to place to place to place to place because they were showing favoritism. They were trying to get financial gain. They were trying to improve their lot in life. And if this guy's a little bit richer and he's got a little bit bigger, bigger house and he, he invites me to come over, I'll go stay at his house. Jesus says, don't do that. In whatever place you enter out, you stay there until you depart from the place. Don't go hopping from place to place, showing favoritism to people, or being, or or, or being, or having the the uh, the appearance of looking for a better uh, a better way to make more money. He said, "You go out and you you trust God to provide for your needs to the people that I connect you with, and whenever you go to a person's place, you stay there until you're ready to go to the next place." 
And then he says, if you enter a house or, or someplace and the people will not hear you and, the, and the, they won't have anything to do with you, then you should shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Then we, we think of that and say, what in the world's that talking about? Well, there's an, there's an interesting, uh, I guess you'd call it an interesting practice that some of the Jewish people had, especially people who were the Pharisees and the scribes and some of the traveling rabbis. Uh, if they had gone to an area where there were lots of Gentiles there, and then they came back across the border into, into Judea or into Galilee or someplace where Jewish people lived, they would take off their sandals you know, like, like, like we do when we get mud on our shoes, and they would kind of knock them together, and they'd put their sandals back on, and they'd kind of shake their robe. The idea was, I'm going to get all the Gentile dust off of me before I go back into the land of Israel. So I don't carry anything negative back in. That's where that phrase means to shake the dust off. And, and Jesus basically says, if you go into a town and the people say, forget it, I don't want to, to listen to anything that you say. Then he said, just shake the dust off and move on. In other words, if they reject the truth, accept it and move on. But he said, you be obedient you preach repentance, you go out trusting God, you be content with what God provides. If people reject it, don't take it personally. Just accept that and move on, but you be obedient and you preach repentance. And that's what they did. Verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. They ministered courageously in the face of unbelief. And that's the thought that I want to leave with you today, that they ministered courageously in the face of unbelief. They were faithful, they trusted God, they were content with what He provided, and they continued to minister courageously in the face of unbelief. I don't know where things are going in our country. I don't know where things are going in our region. I don't know what the future holds in, in, in the next two or three or four years. I, I, I have no idea what's going to happen but I, in, in, with as far as the specifics of all of it. But I just have this sense as I look at the world that there are some challenging times ahead for people who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And it's very easy for us to withdraw and retreat and stop witnessing and kind of enclose ourselves in a little bubble and say, this is where I want to be and I'm comfortable and it's here and I don't want to reach out to anybody because there's so much unbelief out there, and there is. And yet Jesus, when he was faced with unbelief, he sent his disciples out and he said, get out there and preach the gospel anyway. Minister courageously in the face of of unbelief. May God help us to do that in the, in the years ahead. Let's pray. Lord, I know that these folks here, most all of them certainly know you as their Savior. We've recognized the truth about Jesus. We know who you are. We know what you've done. We know why you came. We know that you saved us. We know that you've forgiven us. We know we have a home in heaven. And we look around at the unbelieving world and we see some antagonism, not a lot here in this area. Nobody's throwing rocks at us and threatening to shoot us or throw us in jail. But we are, we are experiencing, and we do experience in Lord, some resistance to the gospel, resistance to the word of God. And we expect that's going to continue and grow in intensity 
as we get closer to the time of your return. Help us, Lord, to not be discouraged by the unbelief of people. Help us to continue as Jesus encourages disciples to do, to minister courageously in the face of unbelief. We know, Lord, we will need your help to do that. And so we ask for that in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.